Welcome to the Drive Church Podcast. Join us today as we explore the Word, giving insightful solutions for day-to-day living. We pray this message encourages you throughout your day. You can also visit www.drivechurch.me. Now on to today's message. Today we're going to be looking at the life that God opposes. The life that God opposes. And God actually opposes a certain type of life. And it's going to surprise you when you find out what that is. There's a story of the Union General John Sedgwick in the Civil War. And the the general is walking um, by an overlook, looking out where the enemy troops were at. And as he walked by, boldly, one of his men said, Hey, sir, do you think you should duck? They make and hit you. He said, Nonsense! They couldn't hit an elephant at this. And he was killed. His arrogance and pride cost him his life. Now, uh, arrogance and pride may have cost you something in your life, right? We've all had arrogance and pride creep up at weird times. Now, it could have just been, it could have made you the, the, the butt of a joke also. Sometimes arrogance and pride doesn't cost you your life. Sometimes arrogance and pride actually has people laugh at you when you try something really arrogant and prideful and then you don't make it. I remember walking to, to um, at East Carolina University. We were walking up what they call the hill there. And we were walking up that hill and students were just... I mean, it was slam-packed. The road was full of students. The sidewalks were full of students. And we were all like zombies walking toward our 8 o'clock class. If you ever had an 8 o'clock class, you know how that feels. And so as we're walking, we hear a guy on a bicycle beeping his bell and screaming expletives, which I can't say in church. Or you'll think I was speaking in tongues. And so um, he was screaming at people, get out of the way, get out of the way. He was trying to get to class. He's walking his bike. We kept looking like, who is this guy? What is he doing? Then finally... This guy, which the Bible would probably call a fool. Um, <laughs> Jesus says, I can't call him that, but Solomon probably would. He hops on his bike, and there's a, a grassy knoll that led to the sidewalk. And he decided to get on that grassy knoll where people can't walk, and he's going to fly by everybody. So he hops up there, and we look, and he is literally driving by everybody cursing. And what he didn't see was a concrete gutter coming down. He tries to jump the gutter. He hits the gutter and rolls into the street. Now that's before I knew Jesus. So my response was my roommate and I fell on the ground laughing. I'm to my, we were laughing so hard. We were crying at this guy. I mean, we were getting 18 years old. I wasn't a, a, a Jesus follower, so I didn't care. But this guy was the whole, I mean, hundreds of students were laughing at him. He was angry. He was prideful. He was arrogant. He was going to get by everybody. And boom, he rolls into the street and he's laying. He gets up angry, cursing. His bike's broken. He, he takes it and just runs it up the hill and does that. Pride gets us in trouble, doesn't it? Arrogance gets us in trouble. And this is actually what James talks about in James chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 6 today. And as we've established, James was writing to churches scattered abroad in the first century. So the first century church was under extreme persecution. They were going through losing their lives, losing limbs, losing family members. They were being killed. They were being beaten for their faith. And so James writes this letter to encourage the churches. And lastly, we looked at teachers and and people, um, how to use your words correctly. Where James is dealing in James 3, I want you to watch this, with problems internally in the local churches. Now, we know that churches never have problems internally, right? There's never anything. Because we're, I mean, in here, if we turn the lights off, you would glow in the dark. You guys are so holy. There's none of those problems here. But 
in the first century church, when you read the New Testament letters, you're going to see that there was problems. People say, I want to go back to the first century church, back to Acts. No, 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 you don't. There were some really gross things going on. If you read 2 Corinthians, you may see that. And James here deals with the issue of pride among the community of believers. Now, what would happen in the first century was this letter had no chapters or numbers, okay? That didn't come to way later. And they would take this one letter and circulate it, and the local pastor would read that letter in one sitting to everybody. So we're going to read a lot of scripture today, but let me encourage you. If you're scared of reading a lot of scripture, number one, some of y'all didn't read your Bibles this week. So you get all your scripture today, right? Number two, we're not reading the whole letter together. We're just reading one chapter. So I'm letting you off the hook. I'm not even being as biblical as the first century churches. And we're going to open up by looking at one verse I'm going to draw your attention to that really shows the heart of this whole chapter. If you want the the, the, the heart, the crux of the chapter, here it is in verse 6 of chapter 4. James says, and he, that's God, and God gives grace generously. Everybody says, amen. Because we all like grace and generous grace. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How many of you be honest today and say in your life, you would love to live a life that God opposes? I want God to be as much against me as he can. I want to be like Lieutenant Dan on the, uh, on the mast of the ship, screaming at God from Forrest Gump. Right? I want to be that guy where God opposes my life. None of us would. But the truth of the matter is, when we look at the scriptures, and that's why I love going verse by verse, you have to come to terms with some things that God says. And one of the things he says is that he opposes the proud. There is a life that God opposes. You know, many of us um, see these superstar preachers on the front of a book smiling going, your best life ever. And we're like, we love that New York Times bestseller. What if I wrote a book called The Life That God Opposes? I wouldn't put my face on the front because the sales wouldn't go well. But the truth of the matter is there is a life that God opposes. It's a life of pride. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. Now, why does God do this? You'd say, I thought, I thought God was loving. God is loving. I thought God was graceful. He is graceful. He opposes the proud, proud but gives grace generously to the humble. See, we have this view of God, especially of Jesus, as this guy, this hippie white man that speaks in English on the back of a unicorn, flying around on a rainbow, throwing out marshmallows, singing, all the world needs now is love. That's the hippie, non-biblical view of Jesus. Jesus loves you enough not to leave you the way that you are. He loves you enough to challenge you to give you your best life yet. He loves you enough to tell you you got something in your teeth, right? That's what friends do. And, and literally, that's how much God loves us. And this, one, this verse and this chapter is all about. Listen, the big idea today is this. Pride separates us from God and from others. Pride separates us from God and from others. See, when Jesus went to the cross and gave his life for us and rose again, he did that so we could be united with God, one with our creator once again, right? Isn't that beautiful? To be in fellowship, in intimacy, receive new life. We're made new again. We get life We're connected to God. But not only that, Jesus came, he died, and gave his life for us and rose again so we could be connected to each other. 
The Bible calls us the body of Christ. We are connected. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can't do it alone. You have to have other believers in your life. We feed each other. We help each other. And what pride does is it undoes the work that Jesus did for us. It literally separates us. Pride separates us from God and separates us from others because pride isolates us. And we say, man, I don't need anybody helping me. I don't need anything at all. Matter of fact, God, you just hang out there. I'm going to do my thing and you come in when I need help. You come in when things are going really tough, but I got it. I don't really need you. You tell others you don't really need them. And the truth of the matter is, we need people, right? We need God. We need him like the air that we breathe. And pride separates us from God and from others. Now, this is important today for this very reason. None of you, including myself, are exempt from this message. If you sit here and think, I've got a hall pass. I can check out during this message. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how new to the faith you are. I don't care how holy you think you are. We all have the disease of pride that runs through us. We all are affected by pride. And the scary thing for me is that I've seen is that people do irreversible damage when they let pride creep in. They do irreversible damage to relationships, in jobs, in churches, in their personal life. I have seen, listen to me, pride destroy people. And I'm pleading with you today, listen to me, that you would take this to heart and say, God, search my heart where there is pride. Because you know what pride says? Pride says a few things. Pride actually has, actually, you've probably heard this in your mind or you've probably even said this. Pride says, I don't need anybody to teach me anything. I know it all. I've got this. It could, again, that could be in your marriage. Pride keeps you from going to marital counseling. That could be, um, you know, at your job. I don't need anybody to show me anything. I know everything. That could be in your, your, your skill, maybe at church where you serve. I'm not sure. But pride says, I don't need to learn anymore. I've got this. I'm good. I've graduated. And that's what pride says. So if you ever hear, feel yourself saying that, you know that pride's crept in. Um, another thing that pride says that is dangerous, pride says this, no one will tell me what to do. I've said that, haven't you, right? We've all said that. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. Now, that sounds really good, but what's going to happen is this. Eventually, you'll turn that on Jesus. I've seen this. I, I'm not a rookie. And I kind of specialize in this area of pastoring people is that when people have the idea that there's nobody going to tell me what to do, I'm my own person. Eventually they turn that on Jesus and they won't let him tell them what to do either. And that's what pride does. It separates from God and separates from others. I don't need you to show me anything. I don't, I don't need you over me. That's one thing that I loved about growing up with sports. Um, I really value sports. My wife knows that. My, my son will find a sport to play of some sort. And here's the reason. I learned something very valuable that I've not lost to this day. If you played on a sports team, the coach had the right to pull you to the sideline and wear you out. Get in your face and tell you that you've hurt the team. You're not paying attention. And I had that happen when I played offensive line. I started four years of high school. And, and, and there's times he pulled me over and sat me down. You're not listening to the snap count. You're costing the team yardage. You're costing the team this. And I had two choices. I could either get mad, take my pads off, and leave the team and be an idiot. 
or suck it up and realize I need to learn and I don't have it all. That's what coaching does. And that's what, when you find people who've been involved in sports, they understand that, that they don't know everything and that coaches can help them and coaches can show them. And we have many kids today that they don't believe anybody can show them or teach them anything and no one's going to tell them what to do. I love the fact when I have my coaches tell me what to do. And you know, here's the thing, that God does the same thing to us. In love, he pulls us aside and says, hey, you're hurting the team, bro. You're killing us. You're killing team Jesus over here. you got to straighten that up. He doesn't do that because he hates us. He does that because he loves us. The Bible says that whom God loves, he disciplines, he coaches, he pulls aside and says, hey, look, get those things straight. I'm here to help you. We're going to work on this, but you can't keep killing yourself and the team. Because guess what would happen when I would mess up at, um, in a game in football or in basketball? Guess what would happen? We had to run suicides. Now, in basketball, it was easier because the court was shorter. In football, we had to go 100 yards. 20 and back, 40 and back, 60 and back, 80 and back, 100 and back, and we were worn out. I did much better the next game, right? Because someone told me what to do. Someone helped me. And, and, and again, God does the same thing with us. Don't let pride turn that attitude on God. Here's what pride says too. I am better than another person because of what I have, because of what I wear, because of how much money I make, the house that I live in, the neighborhood that I am, the color that I am, the political affiliation that I am. I am better than somebody else. That's what pride says too. That's prejudice that comes in. Let me tell you something. In the kingdom of God, there is no one better than anybody else. The gospel levels the playing field. There are not middle school Christians and junior varsity Christians and varsity Christians. Everybody, the playing field is leveled when you're in Christ. And you can't look down on somebody else and say, well, I'm much better than they are. Well, I, I definitely don't do things like that. Because that's pride. Pride causes us to think we are better than somebody else. Pride causes us to think that we are elite to somebody else. And then pride also says this. I am not forgiving or asking forgiveness from anyone. I refuse to say I'm sorry because I'm, I'm not in the wrong. I'm never in the wrong. One of the things that, that, that I've had to teach young leaders is this. You need to apologize sometimes even when you're not wrong. Because it's the right thing to do. Pride says, I'm not asking for forgiveness. I'm not saying I'm sorry. I will do it. And what does that do? That separates you from somebody else, doesn't it? Pride separates us from God and separates us from others. I'm not going to say I'm sorry. I'm not going to go that route. And that's how pride destroys our lives. And let me tell you, it, pride has got me in trouble so many times. <laughs> I could go on with story, 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 and I could probably bore you to death. But I do remember that I had a friend, the pastor in a church, and some people just did him wrong as the pastor. I mean, it was really ugly what happened. So I'm like Mr. Justice League of America, right? Not on my watch. <laughs> I'm going to step in and do something about this. <laughs> so I decided to send them a little message and tell them what the Bible says. <laughs> My friend said, hey, could you, could you not do that anymore, please? We could just let God handle this. I don't need you stepping in and doing things like that. And I realized pride caused me to step into something and say things I shouldn't have said because I had this sense of justice. See, I don't know how pride affects you, but it affects all of us, doesn't it? If so, my wife now has to 
help me write emails and she, the staff help me do these things. I send them first before I do that because I get in so much trouble with pride. And this is a very touchy subject to God. You would think, why would God say that, that he opposes the proud? You say, that's very strong language. I'm not sure I buy into that. You know why? Because it reminds of some, someone that he's known for a long time named Satan. Satan was the creator of pride. Matter of fact, one writer put it this way, and I love the way that he he put this. He said, it was this sin, we're told, which transformed Lucifer, an anointed angel of God, the very seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, into Satan. Pride always turns you into something uglier than what you really are. The father of lies, the devil, the one from whom hell itself was created. We're warned to guard our hearts against pride, lest we fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Satan loves pride. That's what he operates on, because he can separate you from God and separate you from others. The apostle John put it this way in 1 John 2.15. He says, for all that is in the world... The lust of the eyes, the lust, lust, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. So my heart today is that we would have our hearts guarded against pride. We love to talk about sins of the flesh, don't we? Don't run, chew, or drink with those who do. But we don't deal with things like pride in church. We don't deal with things like prejudice in church because it's a sin of the spirit. It's a sin that's hidden that we can easily hide. But let me encourage you that if you continue to live with pride and don't ever have pride checkers, God will end up opposing your life. And here's what a white life of pride looks like. And I guarantee you're going to see something in your life. We're going to walk through, the, through, through these, uh, these verses quickly. What does a pride, life of pride look like? Number one is this. It's allowing jealousy of others to rule your heart. It's allowing jealousy of others to rule your heart. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. And James writes this. I want you to look, think about the community of believers in the first century he's writing to. What is causing quarrels and fights among you? What's wrong with you people is what he's saying. <laughs> Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Jealousy was something that was impacting that community. They were jealous of what other people had. Let me tell you that jealousy is the daughter of pride. Where you see jealousy, it, it comes from pride. Because you know how jealousy happens? Comparison. Do you guys ever fall in the comparison trap? Anybody? Right? Aren't you always looking at somebody else's life and what they have and what they did or, 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 or who they are? And sometimes that creeps in and you're like, man, I don't feel like I'm as good as they are. Or you feel like you're better than they are. You know, you know what jealousy is? It's believing you deserve what somebody else has. And that's what happened in the community of believers in the first century. They, the jealousy overtook them and so they fought and they, they scrapped and they strived to get that. Jealousy will rip your life apart. Because you go in debt to get things that you shouldn't have. You'll tear others down to try to get positions. Jealousy will corrode you from the inside out. It's the daughter of pride that comes from comparison. Now I like what James says. He says, listen... 
If you're looking at somebody else's life and, you, and you're wanting something, have you ever asked God for it? And then the other thing is, well, why do you even want it? I love what John the Baptist said. It's beautiful. His disciples are literally leaving and going to Jesus, right? So like, you remember in, in, in the Gospels, John the Baptist's disciples leave. That was Jesus' first disciples was John's disciples. He actually had a you know, church split and John's guys went with Jesus. And so there were some people who went to John and said, Hey man, you know, your disciples are leaving and Jesus' following is getting really big. What do you think about that? I love what John said. He says, a man can have nothing unless heaven give it to him. He knew that God had blessed and anointed Jesus for that. And he was okay with the disciples going there. A man can have nothing unless heaven give it to him. So I want you to realize in your life, if if you feel like you're missing something, if you feel like you don't have what somebody else has, if you feel like you really do deserve this, ask God. And then when you ask God, say, God, help me find out why I really, really want this. When I was first in ministry, I thought I wanted a really, really, really big church. Right? A lot of guys just want really, really big churches. We're going to go, you know, this, this many people. It's all about numbers of people and things like that. That's not the problem. Here's the problem. Why do you want that? Why do you want that? And here's what my heart is at. I want to see impact, not just people sitting in pews. And that's why I preach as hard as I do about the things from the Bibles I do. Because I want to see your life impacted. My life shifted. Because I used to look at other guys and say, well, they got more. And they got this. And they got that. And And God says, well, why would you want that? Why do you want that? And God had to check my heart on that. Realize that jealousy impacts everybody from the pastor to the youngest person in here. Jealousy is the daughter of pride. Here's the second way that pride manifests. This is what a life of pride looks like. It's being deeply in love with your sin. Being deeply in love with your sin. And and let me explain that. Let's, Let's read and see what James says first. He says, you adulterers. This is good preaching on a Sunday morning, right? You're so encouraged. Um, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? And I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Let me tell you something. That one scripture there was what changed my life in 1998. I had a friend tell me that before I even got saved. It made me so mad I wanted to rip his eyes out. <laughs> but it never left my heart. When he said that to me before I knew Jesus. So today if you're mad that means God's working on your heart. Uh, Do you think that the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate. That the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. Here's the thing. He says friendship with the world. That word friendship means a close intimate relationship. Where you love that person. In your life there are people you love right? That you are, I mean, it may be a family member, maybe a spouse, it may be a child, it may be, um, you know, a friend. He says a deep, loving friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Here's the deal. If you don't hate your sin and you don't hate sin, if there's not a struggle there, you may not be a believer. It's not the fact that you struggle, right? Because don't we all struggle? And you can't be pointing at people saying, well, their struggles. We all struggle with sin. Uh, for you, you guys that think that you're sanctified because you stop drinking, smoking, and cussing, and all that. You still got things of the Spirit in your heart. Jealousy, envy, pride, condemnation, gossip. Yeah, you, yeah. You call it prayer lines, but it's gossip. 
We all deal with that. And here's the thing. When you first get saved and give your life to Jesus, you want God to get rid of all the things that you don't like. But after you begin to grow in the Lord, guess what? He gets rid of all the things that he doesn't like. And, 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 and that's one of them is, is pride. It causes you to be deeply in love with your sin. And friends, I say this out of, uh, out of a love for you as your pastor. I have watched people walk away from Jesus because they were so in love with the world. They were so in love with the world. I've also seen people grow closer to Jesus coming to one of our staff or coming to a group leader or coming to me and saying, man, I hate the sin that I have in my life. And I struggle and I hate it. And I've watched grown men cry over it. That's when you know you're a believer. It's not the fact that you don't have struggles. How do you feel about your struggles? And if you're deeply in love with your sin, if you're like, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care what God says, I don't care what anybody says, I'm going to do this because I feel like it's right, because God wants me happy, and that's the ultimate goal of life, then listen, you will be an enemy of God. God will oppose that life because you're telling God that I believe I know best, not that Daddy knows best for you. God has a great life mapped out for you, but let me tell you something, in His Word are guidelines to help us live that life out. Are you deeply in love? with your sin? Are you, or do you hate your sin? That's the number one thing. And here's the third point. Quickly, here's the third point. What's the life of pride look like? Being overly critical and judgmental of everyone else. Being overly critical and judgmental of everyone else. Say, ooh. Because that's all of us in here. Some of y'all didn't get that. You can say, ooh. Okay, because that's good. All of us in here. Listen to what James says this says here to the community of believers in the first century. He says, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. What right do you have to judge your neighbor? Another way that pride manifests, and this is really sneaky, is when you're overly critical and judgmental of other people. Now, you've heard this before. You know why you've heard this before? Because almost every writer talks about it. When we do verse by verse, you're like, didn't we just talk about that? It's because in the New Testament, that was something that was destroying the local community of believers. It kept coming up because they were overly critical, overly judgmental, pointing fingers, criticizing people, gossiping about people. And that's the things that destroy the communities of believers that follow Jesus. Let me say this. You need to be as merciful to others as you are yourself. Are we merciful to ourselves? If we mess up, we're like, oh God, forgive me. I'm just, I'm so sorry. Okay, who going? But somebody else does something wrong. Ho, ho, ho. They don't live to your expectations. Off with their head. (laughs) Right? That's how we operate. Jesus said, love others as you love yourself. Be as merciful to others as you are yourself. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pessimistic, critical guy. I mean, that's, I just, I, my job is to, to, to help organizations get better. That's what I do. I, pastors, I, I meet with pastors all week long. I, I work with them. And so I naturally have this leadership bias where I see all the problems. These guys can tell you that, right? What problems did you see, you know? What did I do wrong? I have one step in real of this. Hey man, talk to you for a second. Hey, well, what did I do wrong? You know? 
But but can I tell you something? That's that's e- easily can be turned into something that's prideful. And when you look at other people and what they're trying to do, realize that everybody's doing the best they can do in life. They're really trying. Be merciful to other people. Give people the benefit of the doubt. If they didn't smile to you when, whenever you walked in or they, 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 they haven't lived to your expectations or they didn't do this, they didn't do that, I wonder what's going on in their life. Don't be off with their head. Overly judgmental, criticizing other people, overly critical of others. Be merciful. Here's the fourth and final way that pride shows up in our lives. It's when we have a temporal view of life and possessions. I'm going to explain that. When we have a temporal view of life and possessions. And look at uh, James in, in verse 13. I like what he says here. He sounds like a good country preacher. He says, look here. You know, look here, boy. <laughs> look here. You who say, today or tomorrow, we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It is here a little while, then it's gone. That's pretty sobering, right? What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and we will do this or do that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and such boasting is evil. Many of us have an eternal view of possessions. Let me explain that. Many of us don't realize someone else will occupy the house that you live in. Your car will rust. You you will die. Your family will die. I know that's bad preaching, right? The writer of Proverbs says the end of joy is grief. I mean, you know, it's like, great. And the older you get, the more you experience these things. Some of our our saints in here that are older, that are in here can tell you, you don't get better as you get old, right? Make it smarter. But life is short. And what we've been taught to do and, and trained to do in our generation is this. We've been taught to have an eternal view of, of possessions. Live life with open hands. Saying, God, just like Job said, he said, naked I came and what? Naked I'll go. That's the southern, southern version of that. It's having a, a, a view where you understand that there'll be a generation that lives past you. Our heart here, let me tell you something, at both these, these campuses we have, they were relaunches. Do you know the average church, what the lifespan of an average church is in America? 45 years. 45 years, a church hits decline and starts to die. Every church in America faces it. This is studies they've done. And we looked at both, both, both campuses, that's what happened. And we came in to breathe life and to see lives touched again. But you know why we're really doing this? This is not about me. It's not about Mark. It's not about you. It's not about what you want. It's not about what I want. It's about a hundred years from now, another generation filling this place and worshiping Jesus and, and teaching kids the gospel. That's what it's about. It's about taking ground and impacting Richmond for Jesus. That's what it's about. It's not about now. It's about the future. And we should have a temporal view of everything in our hands. I'm building a house right now. I'm building that for somebody else one day. You know that? I'm not building it for me. More people throughout history will live in that house than I I will in a matter of years. 
There is, my dad understood this principle more than anybody else. And my dad wasn't a believer. That's the sad thing. I don't know if he knew Jesus or not. I don't know if he's in heaven or hell or not. I had to preach his funeral and didn't know that. But my dad understood one thing. It wasn't about him. That he was getting older and he was going to die. It was about me and, 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 the, and my children and my brother's children. About a generation after. He would sit at the bar. And at night he'd say, son, I'm going to tell you something. If I live 20 more years, I ain't going to leave you anything. <laughs> if I die soon, you'll be okay. I was like, Dad, shut up. I don't know. You could, man, you're, you're tough as nails, you know? Right? You can, oh, you'll be okay. And literally within a year, my dad passed. But he knew. He lived in a tiny little shack, made lots of money so he could put my brother and I through school debt free. He knew he wouldn't live forever. He knew he wanted things to go past him. And that's the view of a believer. You should have a temporal view. Hands are open. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is not Thrive. This is God's. And one day we're going to, in a hundred years, none of us will be here, right? We all know that. In a hundred years, none of us will be here. And our heart is, is that God, you, by your will, by your grace, by your power, fill this place with a generation worshiping you. There was a story of a man who was dying. And he told his wife, he said, honey, I want to die in my bed. I want to die in a hospital. She said, why? He says, I want to carry my money with me. She says, okay. He says, don't you put the money in the attic right above where my bed's at. And when I go, I'm going to carry that money all to heaven with me. So, you know, some months passed and, she, you know, the husband passed. And one of the family members asked, well, did you go up and check on the money? She said, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I went up and checked. She said, was it there? She said, of course it was. She said, I told him where he's going, he should have put it in the basement. <laughs> have a temporal view of life. Temporal view of possessions. The good news today is this. God gives us the antidote for pride. And I love what, as we opened up, we'll close with this. James 4, 6 says this. And God gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud. Say, but. But. But gives grace to who? The humble. So, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Watch this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. That's the good news today. If, if, you, if you see the life that God opposes, you know the life God blesses? A life of humility. A life of humility where, where we humble ourselves before God and say, God, forgive me for what I have done. Forgive me of what I've said about others. Forgive me of how I've treated others. Forgive me of my pride. And when you do that, God blesses you. That's the life God blesses. And today we have a chance as we close for all of us to humble ourselves before God. I want God to lift you up. I want God to bless you. I want you to see the greatest life that he ever does have for you. But it's when you humble yourselves. I want to pray today for you. Father, in Jesus' name, we come today. And Lord, 
we all are affected by pride in different ways. We all have stories of how pride has hurt us, Lord. We've made dumb decisions, sometimes irreversible damage. But today, we know the truth of your scriptures. For you give grace generously. You give grace to the humble. And today, God, we humble our hearts before you. God, forgive us of pride. Forgive us of pride. Every one of us in here, Lord. Help us to have a pride radar. When it comes up in us, we would know that the devil is trying to take foothold. He's trying to separate us from you and from others. So God, today we literally humble ourselves before you. Help us to be as merciful to others as you have been to us, God. And as we're praying in here today, church, as we're praying and seeking God, today you may have come in and thrive. And today is your day to give your life to Jesus. You know the ultimate act of humbleness is when you surrender your life to the Lord Jesus. You turn over your life to Him and say, I'm yours. And His love brings life to you. Today, if you're in here today and you're saying, Kevin, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to humble myself before the mighty hand of God. Just lift your hand up between me, you, and God. Maybe you came here today and you said, that's me, Kevin. I want to surrender my life. I want to have the ultimate act of humility. I want to give my life to Jesus.